The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening... Uh, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give us an opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to focus our thoughts, concentrate, and get ready to study the Word. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you have provided a perfect salvation for us, a salvation that is not dependent upon anything that we do a salvation that is not dependent in any way on our thoughts, our actions, but totally dependent upon the work of Christ on the cross, that we receive this salvation by simply trusting in Him. Father, we thank You that Your plan of salvation, Your plan for our individual life as believers has been laid out from eternity past, and that You have revealed these things to us in Your Word, and that it is God the Holy Spirit who guides us, who strengthens us. He is the one who helps us to understand these things and to put them into practice in our lives. And we pray that we would be responsive to his teaching ministry tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 28. We got part of the way through the chapter last time. We're back there uh, this evening. Now, the interesting thing is we go through Genesis and we talk about Abraham and then Isaac. Not a whole lot about Isaac. We're just about done with Isaac and Jacob. Most of the Jacob Toledot really focus, I mean, the Isaac Toledot focuses on Jacob. And then we will ultimately come to Joseph. The last four parts of Genesis focus on the founding of the uh, Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But when we get into this Jacob narrative, a lot of times people just get lost. There's some unusual things that happen in the Jacob narrative, and it's easy to sit there and read this and go, well, what's going on here? Why is this here? What's the significance of this? And, and I scratch my head over some of these things as well, but all of this relates to God working out his plan and demonstrating historically his faithfulness to his promise. And that's an important thing for us to understand because God makes this promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, reiterates it in Genesis 15, again in Genesis 17, again in Genesis 18, where you have the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant, that God promises three things. Everybody knows them by now, land, seed, and blessing. And this is given to Abraham. Now, the Abrahamic covenant to the Jew is roughly equivalent to positional truth for the believer in the church age. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that this is an unconditional covenant, that if you are born a Jew, that covenant goes to you. Now, if you're not a believer, you're not going to see the ultimate fulfillment of it in the future. But that covenant belongs to every single Jew. It's their position in Abraham. They can't lose it. Now, the Mosaic Covenant is going to come along and put him in the land, and it's going to tell him how to live in the land as a kingdom of priests set apart unto God. So we see that same analogy if you just think about the what we have up on the chart when I put the circles up there, bottom circle, I mean left circle and right circle, that the left circle represents our position in Christ. And all that we have... They can't be taken from it. It is ours unconditionally. But then the right circle is our experience in the Christian life. And when we're obedient, we're in the circle. We are walking by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, in the place of blessing. When we are disobedient, we're outside the circle in a place of judgment and divine discipline. And the same thing is true of Israel, that when they are walking by means of the law and obedient to the law, 
then they're in the place of blessing. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, when they're disobedient, they're under divine judgment, divine discipline. Uh, also Leviticus 27, or 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Well, as we come to the foundation of this in the Abrahamic covenant, this is the covenant itself is originally given to Abraham, then it's reconfirmed to Isaac, and it's reconfirmed to Jacob. And the focal point is the same thing. It's the land, the seed, and the blessing. And this is what gives the foundation to the nation Israel for their whole future. From this point forward, they can always look back to what the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob did. That's what that means when you see that phrase from here on out in the rest of the Bible that this is from Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is bringing to bear this emphasis on the Abrahamic covenant that has been established with the nation and is the foundation of God's relationship with Israel as a unique people. And in the second half of Genesis chapter 28, we see this uh, covenant reconfirmed to Jacob at a crucial time in Jacob's life. Now, it's been a few weeks since we were in, in this chapter. We had the conference last week. I was on vacation the week before, so it's easy to forget what's going on. But what, it hap- what we've seen so far with Jacob... We've seen the episode of the birth, the heel-grabbing episode where Esau is born first, Jacob comes out second, but he's grabbing at his heel. And God uses that to say this is a picture of these two nations that will come from Jacob and Esau, and the uh, elder will serve the younger. And then the next episode we see is of this uh, emotion-driven Uh, desire-driven, appetite-driven Esau, who's the outdoorsman, the hunter, comes home tired, thirsty, hungry, and he sees that his brother's fixing a bowl of lentil soup, and so he sells his birthright to his brother. And then there is a chapter interlude there that's almost a parenthesis where Isaac goes to Gerar for a while with, uh, with Rebekah, and there he lies about her. And that's not my wife, that's my sister, because he's afraid that there's going to be, uh, that somehow they're going to kill him and steal his wife because of her beauty. And nevertheless, even though he's disobedient, he has various problems related to trusting God in, in relationship to that, God still blesses him mightily. That's the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. God blesses him mightily, and he comes back just, I mean, he's already pretty, pretty rich. Now he's filthy rich. He is just loaded. He is, uh, and this is a picture of God's blessing, but it gives content to what becomes the issue in the next chapter, which is the inheritance. Because he is, he's got a tremendous inheritance. Now it's not only the physical inheritance, but also the spiritual blessing that it passes down. And now remember, God had already announced that the elder would serve the younger. So it was known that God was going to bless the younger one, Jacob, not Esau, that that was the path of blessing. But we saw all this family struggle and uh, manipulation trying to figure out how to get the blessing from God. And even though man is, and this is, I don't know about y'all, but I think this is encouraging, even though everybody's trying to outmaneuver God and manipulate God, Nevertheless, God works out his purposes and blesses them despite the fact that they don't deserve any of it because they're just about the most venal group of people you've ever run into. But as a result of that, Jacob had to leave because he really angered Esau, and Esau is breathing uh, threats of murder. And so they have to pack Jacob off to the relatives, and of course he also needs to find a wife. And in that process, they, he needs to find a wife that is not infected by the uh, fertility religions, the extreme paganism of the Canaanites. And so we studied the principle of separation, which is still true, that believers need to watch their associates. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15 talks about how uh, people are corrupted through uh, the wrong kinds of friends. 
and Second uh, Corinthians talks about the fact that every Second uh, Corinthians chapter six fourteen don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So there needs to be this separation. So Jacob needs to go back to the family home up in Mesopotamia near Haran, where he's going to go to the home of his uncle Laban and look for a wife because apparently within the family there is still this residual worship of God so it's better to go there than to deal with the paganism uh, surrounding them so that's the background to uh, 28 1 through 4 there's a reiteration of the blessing that relates to the Abrahamic covenant and Isaac blesses him in verses 3 and 4 may God almighty El Shaddai bless you and make you fruitful and multiply, that's the seed, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing, there's the blessing aspect, and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land. So we have uh, seed, blessing, land in that order, and yet he is leaving what? The land. So that's a major element there. Then there's this interlude in verses 6 to 9 that tells us about what is going on with Esau? And Esau, having already married two Canaanite women and realized the displeasure that he brought to uh, Isaac because of that, now is going to try to please him. And so he's going to take a third wife as if the polygamy pleases his father. And he uh, takes a daughter of Ishmael. So Jacob leaves and he's on a wife hunt and he's on his way to tra- traveling from uh, down in this, uh, Hebron up to Haran, a journey of about 400 miles. And as he goes through the northern part of the land, he's traveled about 70 miles, and he has traveled from Beersheba down near Hebron. He's traveled from Beersheba in the south, and he comes to a place where he's going to going to camp out for the night. And we stopped there last time in about verse 11. There we read, So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night, because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Now he's not using this stone for a pillow. If any of you have ever camped out, you know that's not very comfortable. I remember one trip some years ago when uh, I took a group of boys on a canoe trip in Arkansas. I think Mike was on that trip. I don't. I can't remember. But uh, uh, we hit this river called Big Piney Creek. Now, it was at flood stage. We didn't realize this. There was 16 inches of rain two days before we hit that area. And that river was about five feet above normal, and it was... Just it was almost like deliverance. With you know, I mean, it was just a wild trip. We got separated as we went around. the The river was so high it would create these islands and little uh, divisions. And so one group went one way to check things out. One group went another way. A third group went a third way, and we didn't see each other for another 24 hours. And so that night I remember thinking one group was ahead of me and they were actually behind me, so we kept pressing on and canoeing through the rapids at night. Now that's a lot of fun is to canoe through rapids at night when you can't see anything. Finally, about 10 o'clock, we decided to pull off and it was a rock bar. It wasn't a sandbar. It wasn't a gravel bar. It was a rock bar. And there were just big, big rocks. A lot of them were smoothed over and they were fairly flat, but that's all it was. And we had our had our sleeping bags. We didn't have any foam pads or anything like that. And we just laid them down and slept on the rocks. It's not very comfortable. What Jacob is doing here, he doesn't have any much, much with him. So what he does is to create a, a place for himself to sleep, he moves these rocks around to just sort of lean up against. And that's what the Hebrew indicates. It's not that he put the rock at his head, but by his head. So he's used, moving the rocks around to create something of a uh, place of comfort in order to sleep. And then he dreamed. Now he probably blamed this dream on the rocks at first. I mean, I remember one time ordering a double jalapeno pizza when I was in college, and that certainly brings on a unique set of dreams. 
He dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth. So this is a theophany. He's going to have a vision here where God is going to reveal himself to Jacob. He dreamed, and behold, a ladder is set up on the earth. I want you to pay attention to the fact that the ladder sets up on the earth and goes to heaven. It's not, it doesn't descend from heaven. The ladder is set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven and there the angels of God were ascending. They were going up and descending. Notice it doesn't say they were descending and ascending. They were ascending and descending. The ladder goes from the bottom up and the angels are going up and down the ladder in that order. Now, I want you to stop there. What's going on? This is called Jacob's ladder. Actually, the Hebrew word that is translated uh, ladder here is more accurately translated or understood to be a stairway. It is the Hebrew word sulam, S-U-L-L-A-M, and it's translated ladder, stairway, or mound. So this is a stairway to heaven. He, be, he dreamed, and behold, a stairway was set up on the earth. Now, what is going on here? He has this vision, and then God is going to speak to him. But what is, what's happening here? We have these various episodes now that we'll run into in Jacob's life, and we just sort of scratch our heads to say, what is happening here? We have the episode with Jacob's ladder here. The next chapter, he meets Leah and Rachel. That's pretty straightforward. But after that, when he tries to get away from Laban, we have this whole episode where he uh, makes this deal about the striped and the spotted sheep and the goats and, if, and, and everything that goes on there. And we just say, what in the world is happening here? But we see God blessing him. And then, of course, he comes back with all of his uh, wives and children and concubines and he has the episode at Bethel where God appears to him again and there is that episode where he wrestles with the angel of God and the angel of God strikes him on the hip so that he is he is crippled at that point and he receives a new name Israel prince with God because he wrestles with God and he won what is that all about and all of these things are connected they begin with this this uh, theophany here, this vision of the uh, of Jacob's stairway, Jacob's ladder, as he's going out of the land, and then when he comes back into the land, it concludes with another theophany where he is wrestling with the angel of God. And so we have to ask the question: What what are these events all about? Because the Holy Spirit is not just giving us stories. They're not just interesting little episodes. He is communicating certain things and demonstrating certain things about God and the outworking of his plan in these episodes. To give us a clue as to what this is all about, we need to turn to the New Testament. So hold your place here in Genesis 30 and let's flip over into the New Testament because there is a direct re- reference, allusion, to this episode of Jacob's Ladder given in John chapter 1 in the very last verse, John chapter 1. Now what's going on in John chapter 1 is John is introducing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins at the beginning of the chapter by introducing him as the eternal Logos. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then in verse 14, we're told that the Word became flesh, and skenade, a tabernacle, dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Interwoven with the introduction of the Lagos, uh, and the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the introduction of, of the primary witness, the initial witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, a man named John, introduced in John 1.6. This is John the Baptist. And that he came as a witness to bear witness of the light. And so you have one paragraph that deals with the Logos, the next paragraph deals with John. The next paragraph deals with the Logos, the next paragraph uh, deals with John. And then we find that John has a couple of disciples, and they are with him, when Jesus comes down to the Jordan to be baptized. And it's at that point that 
John the Baptist announces, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And immediately his, these two disciples, uh, one of whom is John the Apostle, they leave and they follow uh, Jesus. And then a couple of days later, Jesus uh, departs to go to Galilee, and there he discovers another disciple, calls another disciple Philip, in verse 43. And we read in verse 44, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So we have Philip, Andrew, and Peter now with the Lord. And then Philip went to find his friend Nathanael. And he found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the uh, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph so they he is identifying Jesus as the Messiah verse 46 Nathaniel says can anything good come out of Nazareth Nazareth had a reputation not unlike a Pasadena Uh, every place has their, their location that just doesn't have the highest uh, IQ. At least that's the reputation. We know it's probably not true, but you always have some place like that. In Texas, we often talk about people from Arkansas. Up in New England, they said, first, one of the first things I learned was if you cross the main, the, 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 into the state of Maine, your IQ immediately drops 50 points. So every, every place has a location where where they, they don't think the people are too sharp, that, that their brain cells rarely connect. And Nazareth was apparently like that at the time of Jesus. So Nathaniel says, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. So they come to Jesus, and Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. This is a statement related to the uh, personal integrity of Nathaniel, that this is someone who is truly seeking the Messiah and has been studying the Word. And Nathaniel said to him in verse 48, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, you were sitting under the fig tree, and I saw you. Well, this indicates the omniscience of Jesus Christ. See, this is the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity utilizing his divine attributes not for the purpose of solving his personal human problems, but in order to demonstrate that he is who he claims to be, the eternal second person of the Trinity. So he tells Nathaniel, I saw you, you were sitting under the fig tree. And immediately Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus, you know, he probably chuckled at this. And in verse 50 he says, just because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Well, you're going to see things a lot greater than this. But what was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? Taking a nap? Enjoying the weather? Relaxing? Nathaniel, it seems, this hint from the text is that Nathaniel is either reading or he is meditating, thinking about a particular incident of Scripture. And the scripture that he is thinking about and focused on, trying to wrestle with and understand, is the episode of Jacob's vision of Jacob's ladder in Genesis chapter 28, the very passage that we're studying this evening. And we know that because then that's the only way you can make sense of this next statement from Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now you notice the similarity between Genesis 28 and this verse is that the only difference is that, that Jacob in his dream saw the angels ascending and descending on a ladder. Now what replaces the ladder in Jesus' statement is himself as the Son of Man. Now, we've studied this before. Son of Man is a title for the Messiah that comes out of Daniel chapter 7. It is clearly a messianic title. And in Daniel chapter 7, we see the, uh, the, uh, the historic flow of the kingdoms of, of God, uh, of the kingdoms of man in their bestiality. And you go through the kingdom of uh, 
of uh, Media Persia and the kingdom of Greece and the kingdom of Rome and this awful beast that reappears at the end times and then the son of man comes from heaven and he destroys the kingdom the kingdom of man and establishes his kingdom so son of man is this is this messianic title but it is the son of man now who is the mediator the go between between earth and heaven that replaces the ladder of Jacob. Now, I want to think about this a minute because this is crucial to understand the significance of, of this dream that Jacob has. Jacob is looking at the fact that there's, there's earth and there's heaven. God is at the top of the ladder. Uh, he, as the representative of the people that will come from him, is at the bat- bottom of the ladder. And what is ascending and descending on the ladder are the angels. And we have to fit that within our structure of what angels do. Angels are involved in the administration of God's plan for history. And the administration of God's plan for history is a ladder that, come, that, that comes where on the earth? To Bethel, to the land uh, in, uh, that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This ladder is coming right to Jacob. He is the individual that is the focal point of the plan of God for human history and the plan of God's blessing for human history at that point in time. But Jacob, as the seed, is only a foreshadowing of the ultimate seed who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the seed that through, through whom... All nations will be blessed. So the fulfillment of the type that is seen there in, in, in Jacob's ladder is that this, this stairway is replaced by the true mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2.5 says that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It is Jesus Christ as someone who is true humanity that takes this place and takes a stand between man and God. The word mediator is the translation of the Greek word mesites, one who unites parties or who mediates for peace. One who unites parties or mediates for peace. He is the go-between. He must have something uh, that relates to both sides, both parties. He's trusted by both, and he stands between God and man. There's only one mediator. There's no priesthood that's a mediator today. There is one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and this, of course, it relates to his high priestly ministry, which we're studying in our Thursday night study in Hebrews. The next verse says, fits right with this, for there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. It is that giving of himself as the redemption, the lutrotes, the, the payment for the sin penalty. He gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. That is what he focuses that uh, ministry of being the mediator. And so just as Jesus Christ is hung on the cross between heaven and earth, and it is through him that all blessing passes to mankind, in the Old Testament typology, this is grounded in what? The Abrahamic covenant, which is the uh, basis for this imagery in Genesis chapter 28, this stairway to heaven. Now, he comes to this place at Bethel. Bethel is, up to this point, called Luz, which is the ancient Canaanite name. Bethel means, literally means house of God. Beth, is the, or Beit, is the Hebrew word for house, and El is the word for God. So, it's Beit El is the house of God. And the, as I said, the angels ascending and descending have to do with their uh, carrying out their, the plan of God on the earth. Now, what we see happening here is that this young man comes face to face with, his, with God's plan for his life. He comes face to face with God's plan for his life. Now, that doesn't happen in this way 
anymore. You can't reduplicate this experience because what uh, God is doing is something special and unique within his program for human history in establishing and calling out this, this new nation. It's not going to happen that way in people's lives. Today, God doesn't appear this way. The way we are confronted with God's plan for our life is with his word. And at some point after we're saved, it differs from person to person. Some people, it's not long after they're saved. Some people, it's a number of years after they're saved. But at some point, we all come face to face with, the, with God's plan for our life, and we have a decision to make. Are we going to follow God's plan for our life? Are we going to continue to try to run our lives on our own agenda, seeking our own desires, or trying to somehow reach a balance where it's partially what God wants and partially what we want? And eventually, through divine discipline and various other uh, tools that God uses, he finally uh, whacks us upside the head long enough to where he gets our attention or takes us out under divine discipline that we need to align ourselves with his plan. And that's what God is doing with Jacob. And we see this event take place where Jacob, maybe for the first time in his life, really has a serious confrontation with God's plan for his life and what it means to be the one who inherits the blessing from his father Isaac. So God is standing at the top of this staircase at Bethel. Now, we have Bethel at the beginning when he's leaving the land, right? He's headed up back to Haran. Now, he's going to be there for 20 years or more, and then when he comes back, he's going to have another confrontation with God at a place called Peniel, and sometimes it's spelled Penuel. It's both ways in the, in the New King James, and it means to meet God uh, face to face. So the first point in comparison is that Jacob has life-changing events when he's confronted with the plan of God for his life. And this is what happens with people. That's why they sometimes think of it as a religious experience. It's because they are usually, it's a, a time, or not usually, but frequently for some people, it's a time when God just sort of uh, takes out a two-by-four and hits you over the head and you see stars, you just kind of... Uh, get your bell rung with divine discipline and God confronts you with the fact that he really does have a plan for your life and it is it can be an overpowering experience and it can just happen one day when you're sitting in Bible class taking notes and all of a sudden you realize this is talking about me God really does have a plan for my life this is serious you know what 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 I'm hearing is that I've got to make doctrine my life and that can happen right there where you're sitting there, no stars flash, the lights don't blink, lightning doesn't go off, there's no thunder. It's just that the God, the Holy Spirit, at that point in time has been, uh, you've been learning doctrine up to that point. Suddenly it's all sort of crystallizes and you realize that this is all about you and your spiritual life. And it happens in different ways with different people. Sometimes it has to do with events outside of uh, outside of Bible class, sometimes it happens when you're listening to the Word, but sooner or later that just sort of crystallizes. Old revivalists used to call that a, uh, you know, a point of dedication or yieldedness. And, you know, sometimes it just is a process over time. They, they tried to uh, can it or make a recipe out of it that everybody had to have this crisis experience. And for some people it's more of a crisis. Other people it's, it's, it's less of a crisis. But in most people's lives, you just reach that point where you realize that this really is God's plan for my life, and I need to do something about it. The, the consequences are serious. That's what happened to Jacob at Bethel. So the first vision at Bethel is on his way out of the land. And what is God doing here? God is, going, is reiterating the Abrahamic covenant to him, but he is specifically saying, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. You're headed out of the land. The land is the place of blessing, but it's okay for you to be leaving the land, and I'm going to be with you wherever you go. I'm, and I will bring you back. I will take care of you. I'll watch over you. I'm going to provide for you logistically, and I will guard you and protect you, and I will bring you back to the land. It's all about the land. Third, 
point is the second experience like this occurs when he comes back into the land at Peniel. And as he comes back into the land, God appears to him again, reiterates the covenant to him, and that God is going to protect him, even in this confrontation with Esau, who he still thinks is going is breathing uh, threats of murder. Fourth, in both places, there is the mention of the, quote, angels of God. And that's the only place in the scripture that that plural phrase, angels of God, is mentioned. So there's something going on here. These angels, as we studied in on Sunday morning in our study of Revelation, that angels are used to guard and protect believers to the outworking of God's plan. They're used for judgment. They're used for blessing. And as we go through Genesis, we see that the first appearance of angels was with the cherubs. There's this army of cherubs that are surround the Garden of Eden. They're given swords. Swords always picture the power of death. And they had the uh, delegation of judicial authority after man was expelled from the garden, that if anybody tried to get back in, they would kill them, capital punishment, from the beginning, except it came from this uh, cherub army. The next time we see angels is in uh, in Genesis 19, when these two angels are sent to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we see angels here, and we see angels at uh, the second appearance at Peniel. So they have to fit within the biblical structure we've seen so far of the role of angels, which is the outworking of God's uh, plan for mankind, especially in regard to uh, blessing and cursing. The key word that's used in both passages, in the passage here and the one that comes later when he's returning from uh, Haran, is this Hebrew word paga. Paga means to encounter, to meet, to reach, to entreat, to make intercession. There is a divine encounter here that occurs both places, and this word is used two or three times in each section. And that ties this whole unit together. So he he leaves the land here. He goes to Haran. He has his various episodes there with Laban where they try to out connive each other and he's constantly manipulating he hasn't learned it's a great picture of how many Christians are after they're saved they're still trying to manipulate God's blessing do this do that they're in fellowship they're out of fellowship and then finally they start reaching maturity and so when Jacob comes back into the land at Peniel he is wrestling with God and we see uh, that he wins that wrestling match He is blessed by God, and he's given a new name, Prince with God. And from that point on, we never see the scriptures deal with him or relate these episodes of him as this conniving swindler trying to get the best deal from everybody kind of person. So there's a progress of spiritual growth there, and after that, it seems he reaches a level of of spiritual maturity. Now, another thing that's interesting is just the way words are used in this passage. God is at the top, standing at the top of the ladder, and this is the Hebrew word nisab. And another form of that word occurs when Jacob builds a pillar. It's misabah, that double S-A-B is the root word there. Then the next thing that we see is that Uh, When it's talking about the stairway, God is at the top or the head of the stair in heaven, the rosh. That's the Hebrew word for head. Forms of it mean first or beginning. For example, the very first word in Genesis is bereshith, that R-E-S-H is just another form of rosh. Uh, And then Jacob builds this pillar in honor of this event in the last part of the chapter and he anoints the top or the head of the, of the pillar. So the use of common vocabulary between the stairway and the building of the pillar ties the two together in terms of the literature so that the reader understands that these two events 
are connected, not like the liberals say, where one paragraph represents one tradition written by one author and another paragraph represents another tradition written by another author three or four hundred years later. This is, this is the, the events here are all uh, woven together and, and that's indicated by the use of the vocabulary. Now in verse 13. Behold, the Lord stood above it, that is, above the ladder, at the head of the ladder, the Rosh, and said, I am Yahweh. Yahweh, later, we realize this is the name of God that is closely associated with His covenant between uh, the Mosaic covenant, specifically between Himself and Israel. He is Yahweh, God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. What's this connecting? Remember I said Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This Abrahamic covenant, it's reiteration to, to Isaac and then Jacob. It's a foundation for the history of Israel. So right away we see that this is a foundational event for the nation. I am Yahweh, God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you. It's a reiteration of the land promise. And your descendants, that relates to your seed, your descendants. So we have land and seed reiterated in verse 13. Then in verse 14, also your descendants, that is your seed, shall be as the dust of the earth. We've seen that uh, metaphor used already by, or that simile used already by uh, God in, in describing the descendants of Abraham. Your descendants will be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's a prophecy here that not only relates to them in the land, but also long range to the scattering of the nation, to the scattering of Jews throughout the world, to the north, south, east, and west. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. According to Genesis chapter 3, the, the ultimate fulfillment of that word seed in the singular is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in the Lord Jesus Christ that all nations are blessed because he's the one who dies on the cross and pays the penalty for the sins of the world. And through the Jews, all nations shall be blessed. So what God is doing here is separating out this this new people through whom he will give his revelation, through whom his revelation will be uh, preserved, and through whom the ultimate revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ will be given. Verse 15, now he gives a promise, behold, and that word in the Hebrew is hine, H-I-N-N-E, and it is an attention-grabbing word. It's pay attention, behold, Now I'm going to say something important. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. What's going on here? He's leaving the land, the land that God gave to Abraham, the land God reconfirmed to Isaac, the land he has just promised to to Jacob. And God says, wherever you go, I am with you and will bring you back to this land. Now he says, I am with you, indicating his presence, his guidance. I will keep you. That's the Hebrew word shamart has the idea of guard, keep, watch, preserve. Uh, I will watch over you. I will protect you. I will keep you. I will guard you wherever you go and will bring you back to where? This land. Not someplace down in Central Africa. You know, there was an attempt in the late 19th century as the uh, they were trying to find a homeland for the Jews in the late 19th century and into the 20th century there were various attempts to find a place, a homeland for the Jews other than Israel you know, we don't want to upset all those Palestinians they don't have a right to the land anyway but uh, they tried to find a place in Africa they tried to find a place in South America they tried to uh, even attempt to find some, carve out some land in Europe but God doesn't want, hasn't given them land in South America or Africa or Asia. He's given them land only in one spot, and that is their traditional homeland. And God said, I will bring you back to this land 
For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. God is faithful. He's going to fulfill his promise. He's going to do for Jacob exactly what he promised. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. He's probably pretty excited. Uh, He's just had a, a, a heck of an encounter in his dream, a theophany, and he is aware that God has, that this is a special place where God has given him this uh, unique revelation. And see, whenever we have an encounter with God, whenever we have an encounter with God's Word, there is often some sort of emotional reaction. Now, I don't mean we get emotional. I mean, sometimes when you, you, you have an emotional reaction, you read the Word of God and you feel sad. Well, I've really blown it. Sometimes you read the Word of God and you're happy. Sometimes you read the Word of God and you're, 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 you're discouraged, perhaps, because you sense that, boy, I'm just struggling in the Christian life. Or you realize all that God has provided for you. Well, when you have a personal encounter with God and you see this in a number of instances in Scripture, for example, when Isaiah sees God, He's scared to death. And others, when they see God, they are struck with fear. And the same thing happens with Jacob. You see this reaction. He was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the, what, the house of God. This is where God dwells, so he's going to name it Bethel, Bethel. And this is the gate of heaven. Now, the word that is translated fear is the Hebrew verb yareh, which is the standard word for fear. And it means to be afraid, to be scared, to be terrorized. It also has the idea of reverence, to be in awe of someone. It has the idea of, you know, at, the, at, at this some sense you're just in complete awe. You're just almost speechless. You're just overwhelmed with the majestic presence of, of God, and you're not really sure what to say or what to do, except you don't want to do a whole lot. And that's how he feels at this particular point. Now, this doctrine of fear related to God is something that is foundational throughout the Scripture. And I just want to go through some of the passage related to this. Psalm 33 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. This is a sense of awe and respect. It's not just a matter of the way you respect the policeman that you see, it's sort of like when you're driving down the freeway and all of a sudden you realize you've got a police car on each side, one right behind you. There's a whole new level there that, that you're just, you realize if you do anything wrong, you're toast. Everybody's watching you and you're very careful. That's this sense of, of, of fear, recognition that God is a righteous God and we're not righteous at all. And, and it's just the, the grace of God that he has anything to do with us. But then there's also the sense that we're overwhelmed by who he is. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And the synonymous parallelism between these two stanzas helps us to understand the sense of fear, that we are in awe of God. Proverbs 1.7 tells us that it is the fear of the Lord. It is this attitude of of overwhelming respect for his authority, his power, his righteousness that is the starting point of knowledge. Without the fear of the Lord, there's no humility. Without real humility, we can't learn, we can't grow, we can't advance. There has to be a genuine humility on our part, realizing we're the creature, he is the creator, and that is the starting point for learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You can always spot somebody who's not teachable, who's operating in arrogance, because when they really mess up, you can't tell them that they messed up. They don't want to hear it. They just they, they, they don't want to be told that they're out of line, that they failed, that they made a mistake, and the result is that they're going to keep making those mistakes, and that arrogance will eventually uh, be self-destructive. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, reiteration of the same principle. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. 
His praise endures forever. We have to have that respect for God and His authority as established in His Word before we're ever going to be able to grow and advance uh, scripturally. Psalm 34.11 says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So who should be responsible for teaching the fear of the Lord? Parents. Teaching that respect for God. So, uh, Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's not academics as we stress academics. It's a foundation for real knowledge. It is orientation to the authority of God and to the Word of God. Proverbs 8.13, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. There is a moral element to the fear of the Lord. Evil uh, is a religious term. Evil, as it's defined in the Old Testament, is often associated with idolatry. How many times do you read in, in, in the book of Kings, First Kings and Second Kings, that so-and-so became king of Israel and followed after the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, and did evil in the eyes of the Lord? Well, what was the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat? Well, he set up an alternate worship site up in uh, 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 Samaria, and he had an idol there, had a calf that they constructed, and he said, this is the God who took you out of Egypt. So evil in the Old Testament is an alternate worship system based on an alternate God. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. So it's a sensitivity to evil and to sin. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs days. There's a promise here, much as a promise is that um, if uh, children obey their parents, they shall live a long life. You know, you know why in the context of the Mosaic Law, why they'll live a long life? Because the Mosaic Law says that if they're disobedient little uh, hellions, that the parents are to drag them out in the town square and stone them. I remember hearing a pastor years ago talk about that and said, you know, kids, if you're obedient, you'll live long. Ripped it right out of context. The fear of the Lord prolongs days. When we are walking obedience to God, we're not going to come under divine discipline. We're not going to make a lot of foolish, self-destructive decisions. And we're not going to make decisions that will be bad for our health. And so that the general reality is that the fear of the Lord will produce a longer life but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs 14.26 In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and His children will have a place of refuge. When we fear the Lord we recognize that He is the one who is in control of the details of our life and so we can relax and take refuge in Him. Psalm 14.27 The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. It relates to the verse we looked at uh, back in Proverbs 10:27, it is related to experiencing the fullness of life that God has for us to turn us away from the snares of death. Proverbs 15:16, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. It's more important to get your priorities right and your relationship with the Lord right and put doctrine first in your life than it is to be a success, to be an academic success, to be uh, a financial success, and anything else. If you uh, have to sacrifice your spiritual life in order to be a success in life, then it is self-destructive. Proverbs 16, verse 6. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. And finally, Proverbs 23.17, do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous. Make it a priority to pursue the fear of the Lord all the day. So when we look at Genesis 28, we see Jacob's response he is afraid. He realizes the power of God, and he says, how awesome is this space. These two words that relate to fear and the awe of God are connected together here as there are in many other passages in, in Scripture. So he rose early in the morning after he's had this night dream of the, of the stairway, 
And he took the stone that he had put at his head and he set it up as a pillar. That indicates to me that this stone wasn't just like a small stone he was using as a, as a, as a uh, pillow, but it was a lo- large stone that he was using to prop himself up so he could be more comfortable because now he upends it as a pillar. And he called the name of the, and he pours oil on it, on the head of it, to anoint it, which is a symbol of setting it apart for the use of God. And he called the name of that place Bethel, the house of God. And then we have a historical note that the name of that city had been uh, Luz previously. And then he makes a vow. This is his response. His response to God is, first of all, fear. Secondly, he has a response of worship. Now, worship has two categories in the Scripture. There's individual worship, and there is corporate worship. Individual worship and corporate worship. Individual worship is the response of the individual to the authority of God in his life and to the blessing of God in his life. So what he is doing here is a, a, a one element that can be part of worship. In the Hebrew... The word for worship is the hishtafel stem of the verb shakha. That's S-H-A-C-H-A-H, which means literally to bow down. It indicates in its core orientation to authority. Haven't we seen that already? The concept of fear is orientation to God's authority. It is uh, humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he can exalt us. it means to bow down. The first place we saw it used towards God was back in Genesis 24 when the servant of Abraham was sent to find a wife for Isaac. Notice how there's a parallel here. Now, he's on his way to find a wife, and he has this encounter with God, and the result is his own personal worship. Just as the faithful servant of Abraham prayed that God would guide and direct him to a wife, And when God did, he bowed down his head, worshipped the Lord, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master uh, Abraham. And it's this word, worship, bow down and worship. Worship means to orient yourself to the authority of God. So worship can be individual. And the way he worships God is indicated by what he said. Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So worship is what in this passage? It's gratitude. Gratitude for God's grace. That's the core of all worship is our response to God. Corporate worship is the same thing. It's a group of believers who gather together to express their common gratitude toward God and praise to God. This can be expressed a number of different ways. It can be expressed through praise, through thanksgiving, through singing of hymns, through prayer, uh, through ritual in the Old Testament, the ritual related to the Mosaic Law. In the New Testament, part of worship is the Lord's Table. And that's the ritual we have in the Old Test in the New Testament. But the focus is ultimately is always on how God has graciously revealed Himself to us and blessed us. And worship, therefore, is a reflection of awe and fear towards God. And that produces a response. And we see that in Jacob's vow here in verse 20. He made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Now, what did God promise? See, this isn't your typical if-then type of thing. He's not saying, well, if, maybe he will, maybe he won't. He has, there's an element of certainty here. God promised to be with him. God said, I will be with you, and I will keep you until you come back to the land. Same verbs that are used here. God, he says, if God will be with me, and he's assuming he will be, and keep me and guard me and protect me in the way that I am going, and give me bread to eat. In other words, if God fulfills what he just said, then what happens is that when I come back home, uh, I will take this stone, which I have set as a pillar, it shall be God's house. I'm going to establish this as a site of worship and a permanent altar, 
And of all that God gives me, I will surely give a tenth to God. He's going to give him a tithe. So he is, this is a free will offering. There's no mandate anywhere in the Old Testament up to this point on giving uh, to exactly to whom he would give this money. There's no priesthood. It is simply that he will use that uh, a tenth of what God provides for him to maintain this site as a as a site of worship. Incidentally, this is the only the first time you have a formal vow like this among the patriarchs, and he is just uh, making a statement related to his own dedication to God. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not a prescription that everybody needs to do this. But it is what he has chosen to do out of his own volition in order to express his gratitude to God for uh, making him the beneficiary of this blessing. So he's not, this isn't a basis for tithing, this isn't a mandate for tithing, it is simply an example of his gratitude to God for all that God has given to him. So as Jacob gets ready to leave the land, he has a reconfirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. God promises to watch over him, take care of him, protect him while he's outside the land, and to bring him back and to prosper him while he is gone. And we'll see the outworking of that in the next three or four chapters before he finally is able to return to the land in chapter 32 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of this event as it emphasizes the faithfulness of God, but also the humility of man and our responsibility to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us. For he is the one who watches over us. He is the one who is with us uh, throughout all of our days. Father, we pray that you would uh, strengthen us as we study this and see this example from the Old Testament that you are the same God today who takes care of your children in the same way you did with Jacob in the Old Testament. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.